0: Morning, everybody. Uh, as has already been said, my name is Dave. Uh, I had the Dave Knowles. I had the privilege of coming here about three and a half years ago, and I did such a good job. I'm surprised you guys ever called me back. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you may not know this, but y'all have caused me much anxiety as a church because uh, we were very interested in coming to serve here. This is a very appealing church body. Families, people of all ages, sound elders, delightful, meaty, worship music, all the things that I wanted in a church, and then my family complicated it. Every previous time we've served in ministry, uh, my kids were younger, I, by the way, I've been a pastor for about uh, most of the last 25 years. I started with training in church music and served as a worship pastor for the first, uh, half of that or so and eventually got more uh, responsibilities and became a youth pastor and a small groups pastor and eventually a preaching pastor. Um, Last church I served in, uh, I served as a preaching pastor for seven years and at the end of that time uh, I realized I needed more tools in my tool belt, I needed to become a better pastor and so I decided to, we moved to Spokane and the Lord allowed us, provided the means to go to Master's Seminary. Well, for the last four years, that's what I've been doing, except for uh, a year plus. During that time, I also helped shepherd a church in Post Falls, uh, who was in transition, kind of like you all are. And then uh, a month and a half ago, graduated from seminary. Yay! Um, now comes the complicated part. We're trying to find where the Lord would plant us. And uh, I talked to Dan Jarms at Faith Bible, and I talked to Matei, which you all know. And I've met with your elders a couple times, and you guys are delightful, and I'd love to be here. However, the Lord seems to have other plans for us. Uh, Every time in the past when we moved, my kids were young, and they were just coming. And well, now, guess what? They're all adults. I have four adult children. And um, I just assumed that wherever we went next, my daughters were going to stay in Spokane because they're done with their schooling, and they're working now. And that my son, my youngest son, was going to stay in Spokane and finish his degree there at Whitworth. And my oldest son is in Renton with his wife and new baby. We're grandparents as of about, what, six months ago? There you go. Um, I just assumed everybody's staying here and we'd be going. Well, guess what? Every one of them have decided they want to come with us wherever we go. And that has complicated the search process. Because now I need to plant in a place where there's not only a healthy church just like you guys, but... uh, an airport that's large enough for my aircraft mechanic son to work at, right there, and a university with the proper engineering program for my youngest son. I feel like we're looking for a unicorn with a Krispy Kreme on its horn, if you know what I mean. This is a very specific order that we're looking for, and by the way, once we move in my, and my older son and his family moves, their in-laws want to move where we are too. Can you imagine that? Ah, wow! So, uh, it seems like this is the best way to honor the Lord to seek for that. So we found uh, a number of, or a small number of churches that appear to be unicorns and and, uh, we're looking at them right now. And and I have plenty of anxiety about this process and that's what I'm gonna be preaching out today. What do we do when we're anxious? Y'all anxious about anything? Um, I'll be honest with you, I've been so anxious over this search process because now churches are actually responding. And one of them, like for instance, is a great church in Albuquerque that's a lot like y'all, but I don't want to live in Albuquerque, but it happens to fit all the criteria. What if God sends us there? Anxiety, right? Um, and then we're gonna sell our house. Are we gonna have enough money to actually move into another house? I'm old enough, I don't want a mortgage anymore, you know? They're anxious thoughts. And a good picture of how I've been Happened on July 4th. July 4th, you know, the fireworks, I don't know if y'all do those here in Leavenworth, but they certainly did in Spokane. Our neighbors started shooting off fireworks late. We have have two dogs and one of them's a little Jack Russell, long-legged Jack Russell Terrier, who's normally the bravest dog you've ever seen. But as soon as those fireworks went off, she began to fear and become incredibly anxious and shake. And for hours, she shook and panted and acted as if she was afraid for her life. See, she had an unreasonable fear, but she's a dog. She doesn't know any better. I've, I've been feeling like that lately. What do you do with anxiety? I, am I the only one that struggles with anxiety here? <laughs> any volunteers Bone to raise your hand? Let's face it, you know, we're living in a time of instability socially, economically, are we not? Anxiety is all over the place. The price of everything has gone up, you know. We shopped yesterday and we saw the price of food and and the price of gas is what, close to five bucks a gallon now. Uh, Most of us are wondering what's gonna happen and worrying about the future to some degree and how we're gonna make ends meet or how we're gonna deal with the changes that are happening around us. Anxiety is around us and frankly, it's it's within us. We all experience anxious thoughts. If you don't, come talk to me because you're not human. we all have feared that we won't have something when we need it. We've all feared about something in the future that we have no control over coming our way. All of us have lain in bed at some point unable to sleep. Why? Because we're worrying about it, right? Is that fair? Yeah? Am I getting through? All right. So what are, what are you worried about? What comes to mind when I say that? Don't say it out loud, but just keep it, keep it in mind because Jesus is going to address our fear today Jesus understands our anxiety and he has an antidote for it so our passage today is going to be in Matthew 6 25 through 34 Matthew 6 25 through 34 so if you would turn there it's just after what I had Jordan read earlier Matthew 6 25 through 34 and in this passage today Jesus is going to teach us and if you're a note taker here's how I would take notes I'd write the word anxiety, and I'd put one, two, and three underneath it, because Jesus is going to teach us three things about anxiety. I'd write God, and I'd write one, two, three underneath that, because Jesus is going to teach us three things about God that will help us not be anxious. And then I'm going to make three points of application, and then we'll talk about the gospel, and we'll be done. All right? So anxiety, God, application, gospel. So if you're willing, would you please stand to your feet in honor of the reading of God's Word? And we're going to read in Matthew Chapter 6, starting in verse 25, and we'll go down through verse 34. Here we go. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Lord, we certainly need to understand what you're saying because we have anxious hearts. And Lord, you've given us uh, the remedy and we want to own this. We want to trust you for it. We want to walk in it. So Lord, I pray that you'd use my, my words and, and help me to communicate your word clearly. I pray that you'd open our hearts to receive it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. By the way, uh, if I may, If you're ever interested in doing a little bit further work on anxiety if you're like me um, this is a book that I'd recommend by Jim Berg it's called God is more than enough and it talks about some of the things we're going to talk about today Um, so let me set the table in the first century people lived closer to the soil than we do now right I mean we buy our groceries at Safeway you know we, we had Chinese from Safeway last night I didn't have to like plow a field to do it but in that day and time, especially in Israel, you know, virtually all the men were were tasked with working the fields, the familial uh, plot that was assigned to them through their tribe, and every year they would be responsible for tilling the soil. Uh, spreading the seed, uh, harrowing the, the ground over that seed to cover it up and, and waiting until the time of harvest so that they could bring in the grain that would be made into bread that would feed their families, right? Right. And of course, there were many unknowns, right? What if the rains don't come at the right time? What if the locusts come? What if if my ox uh, has a bad leg and can't pull the plow? It would have been pretty common for a man at that point to walk around with the idea of, oh my goodness, how am I going to feed my family? You see, anxiety was just as common in the first century as it is now, right? Well, and ladies, if you think about it, they were... Tasked with many things, but one of the one of the assignments they had was producing clothes for the family. You didn't you didn't go to Walmart or or Macy's or I don't, what do y'all have to buy clothes here in Leavenworth? Everything's going to be a T-shirt that says Leavenworth on it, right? <laughs> you don't. They didn't have that. So what did the ladies? One of the things amidst all the things that they had to do, what did they have to do? They had to. Uh, get, the, get the wool, perhaps shearing the sheep themselves, card the wool, spin the wool to turn it into thread, put it on a loom, weave it, into, weave it into fabric, Right, cut it, and then sew it together. And they had to do this constantly. That would have taken months working in among your other tasks. And the problem is clothes are constantly wearing out. So, so there would have been this constant sense of anxiety in many a woman's heart. How am I going to clothe my family? Because little Joey, he just he just tore his his chitin, his 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 outer garment or whatever, right? So again, I would just suggest to you that that anxiety, fear, disconnected from the provision of God, that's what anxiety is, is something that happened then and happens now. It's all over the place. And it's normal. It's not good, but it's normal, all right? Okay, so no doubt, no doubt everybody had these type of concerns. So here's my question to you once again. What, what, what unmet needs are you anxious about? What thing in the future are you perhaps worrying about? Maybe you're not telling anybody, but inside, you know, there's part of you who's going, ah, I'm not looking forward to that. I've told you some of mine, but think about this. These are some of the things that come about because of anxiety Dread, feelings of dread. What, what makes you uneasy? What makes your thoughts race? What makes it hard to concentrate? What makes you irritable or agitated? What elevates your blood pressure or your heart rate? What causes your muscles to become tense and your stomach to be upset when they shouldn't be tense or upset? What makes you sweat and keeps you sleepless at night? It's Probably something you're anxious about if you have any of those symptoms. See, Jesus knows we struggle with anxiety. And so, during the Sermon on the Mount, he, he begins to lay out how He can be free from it. And not about y'all, but you're looking for a pastor, right? Are you anxious about that? Are you? Yeah, I would be too. I'm anxious about being a pastor. I understand from the opposite end. Well, today, Jesus is going to satisfy that anxiety. You won't need to have it if we pay close attention to what He says for that purpose he begins in verse 25 so look at verse 25 with me look what he starts with therefore therefore I tell you therefore I tell you don't be anxious about your life what you'll eat or what you'll drink see those are the primary needs of the people that he was talking to nor about your body what you'll put on therefore points it back to what he just taught us earlier in chapter 6 And and Jordan read some of that for us. Jesus had been teaching his listeners earlier in chapter 6 that they must place their affections on what is eternal, not on what is temporal down here. They needed to pursue God himself and not be focused on pursuing what, what what we can find down here, what this world has to offer. They were to seek God in honest and simple prayer, to trust God for his provision, for his forgiveness, for his protection. They were to value and seek God's approval over all praise of men and women they were to lay up treasures in heaven rather than on earth and because focusing on what this world focuses on will keep us from serving god again i'm just reviewing the verses just before our passage don carson sums up those previous verses by simply saying it this way get your affections on eternal things and not on this world that's what jesus has been teaching why why is that so important because when our values and our focus is shaped by what's important in heaven then we're prepared to actually deal with what's here on earth but if we live our lives with excessive concern for how our needs are going to be met down here our lives will be consumed they'll be eaten up by anxiety so we all worry about stuff, right? There is, there's reasonable worry. I mean, if you see a grandchild or maybe your toddler heading to the oven and the oven burner is hot, you have a reasonable fear that they might touch that, right? Say, so, no, 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 don't touch that. I have that reasonable fear too. But I don't walk away from the oven thinking, oh, I'm afraid of touching that oven later. It's unreasonable if I continue in it, right? And I obsess about it. Anxiety is fear of not having a need met or not being able to handle something that, that you're, that's coming apart from appreciating God's attitude and care and provision for you. It's when we forget God that we become anxious. All right. Jesus commands us, look at verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. That's comprehensive. Do not be anxious about your life. And he names these biggest concerns. You know, don't be anxious about what you'll eat or drink or what your body, what you put on. He's not saying that the men shouldn't plan and work hard and strive to prepare the fields and, and, and to bring in the crops. No, he's not saying that. And he's not saying the women should just, oh, blow it off and not worry about making the clothing that they need. He's not telling them to be irresponsible. Instead, he's commanding believers not to become anxious About these core needs that we must not be overcome with worry that fills our minds and fear that consumes our hearts why he gives us the reason in a rhetorical question look what he says next is not life more than food and the body more than clothing isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing what's the answer yeah Absolutely, clearly, life is more than food. In fact, food and clothing are merely the necessary things that we need to get on with life. And without clothing, I wouldn't be here today, and you wouldn't either, right? It'd be awkward for all of us. Without food, we're not going to last. I might last longer than some of y'all, but get the idea? Food and clothing are just the necessary means that allow us to live the life that God's called us to, not life itself. And this is the first truth Jesus teaches us about anxiety. Notice what happens. Anxiety makes us blind to what life is really all about that's why he asked the question is not life more than food and clothing because when you're obsessed about an unmet need or about some fear in the future we focus in on that fear and pretty soon we can't see the rest of life anymore anxiety will make you blind have you ever known somebody or ever been somebody who is so focused on something that was making you anxious you couldn't hardly think about anything else Guess what? You're missing life in that that moment, aren't you? Anxiety makes us blind. So when we're unduly concerned and apprehensive about perceived unmet needs, our anxiety can blind us. Our minds can become so focused on our lack that nothing else matters. And our worries can become so large in our own eyes that everything else gets crowded out. Again, Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Yes, but anxiety over our unmet needs what we perceive to be will cause us to focus on what we don't have will cause us to focus on what we don't have and miss the rest anxiety will make you myopic I can't hardly see your faces now it will keep you from living for God's glory because why? It will narrow your focus to the point where you're so consumed with having what you are anxious about not having or fearing what you're anxious, you may not be able to handle. You'll be consumed by that. Anxiety makes us blind and that's Jesus' first point. Anxiety makes us blind. Then Jesus tells us the first important truth about God which will help us not be anxious. What does he say? God values you highly. Values you highly look what he says next he does this by comparing you to birds birds look what he says in verse 26 look at the birds of the air they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them jesus points out that birds don't do anything to create their food do they they don't do a single thing. I mean, they don't plant crops. They don't harvest them. They, they don't store up anything for next week or next month. In fact, you'll never see a bird driving a, a tiny plow, you know, or, 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 or a tiny harvester to harvest the wheat. You just won't see it. You'll, you'll never see a bird building a grain silo. What do birds do? They simply hop around and pick up the food that God leaves for them. Now, they're active in that hopping. Today, uh, the house we stayed at last night overlooks the river. And the birds were swooping over and picking up the food, the the bugs that God had left for them. Um, At our house, God makes provision for the birds in Spokane through a puggle. Our other dog is a a puggle. looks like a giant potato with sticks for legs. And that puggle's greatest enemy in life is the bird feeder we have hanging from the pear tree. And that puggle can't get very high, but the bird feeder is just within reach. So every time you open the door to let the puggle out, the puggle... Enraged approaches the bird feeder barks it real good stands up on her hind legs and bats it and it throws seeds everywhere That's God's provision for the birds in our backyard <laughs> through a puggle. That's crazy, but that's how it happens God provides for the birds Every time it rains what bird do you see around your yard after at the end of the rain? I heard Robin. Yeah, and you notice that what's that Robin doing? He, he expects something God's gonna provide what a worm very likely and if you watch him long enough, he'll pull one out God provides for the birds. So Jesus reminds us in verse 26, your heavenly father feeds them. Your heavenly father, by the way, helps us know he's talking to believers. Your heavenly father feeds them. Are you of not much more value than they? By referring to God as your heavenly father, again, he's affirming a truth for believers that though he's talking to those who have been adopted into God's family by faith. And he says, Aren't you much more valuable than the birds? The answer is yeah. He wants us to understand that in God's eyes, he values his kids far above birds. All humans are made in God's image. Birds aren't, right? I mean, humanity was made, we see in Genesis, to reign as sub-regents over creation and God gave us some of his communicable attributes so that we could reign for his glory in his place with him king over us. We messed it up, but that, that, that stamp, that image is still within us. Birds, no they're just birds and yet god faithfully feeds them birds do bird things they don't they don't reign as sub regents over creation they just hop and fly around pick up food but god faithfully feeds them and you can see it happening every day and jesus wants you to understand that you are far more valuable than all those birds god's taken care of why you're an image bearer but more than that you're his child you're his child by the way, you've borne that image since the moment you were conceived. You've had this value ever since, but when you became his child, you moved into a, a special category. Since you're so much more valuable to God than birds that he provides for daily, wouldn't he care for you too if he cares for them? Isn't the answer obvious? Yeah. We are not to be overcome by anxiety because God values our lives. Okay, so we learned that anxiety makes us blind. That's what Jesus said, and that, that God values your life. And now Jesus is going to say something else about anxiety. And here it is number two, under anxiety, God, or anxiety cannot help you. Anxiety cannot do anything helpful for you. Look at verse 27. Look what he says here. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? can add a single hour to a span of life. So um, does worry cause anyone to live longer? I mean, do you feel more healthy when you're really worried about something? How about you, you know? Do you feel energetic when you're obsessed about something you fear? Hmm. One medical study in 2012 that I looked up said this, and I'm quoting, they found that people frayed by even slight distress... Those who sometimes stayed awake at night worrying or had trouble concentrating on tasks because of anxiety, they were about 20% more likely to die in the next 10 years than people who reported no such symptoms. Does worry extend our lives? No. That medical science will tell you it'll shorten your life, right? In Luke 12, 25, and 26, Jesus was teaching on the same subject, and he said, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life, if then you are not able to do such a simple thing as that? Why are you anxious about the rest? Why are you anxious about the rest? His point is simple. Anxiety is useless to do any good. It can do plenty of bad, but it can't do any good It's not going to extend your life. It's not going to make you feel better. Instead, it will burn away precious minutes and hours and days, weeks, months, and even years as we become so focused on the things we're anxious about. And it can consume your heart and your mind with joy-killing effects. Undue anxiety will not help you. So, again, what has Jesus told us? Anxiety... Anxiety makes you blind. Anxiety cannot help you. But he's also told us that God values your life. And now he's going to say, God will meet your needs. God will meet your needs. See, Jesus doubles down on how foolish anxiety is in verse 28 by comparing us to flowers in the field. Flowers in the field. Look what he says in 28. He says, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow they neither toil nor spin they don't work they don't prepare fabric or anything they don't make thread yet I tell you even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these Solomon as you probably know was the richest man alive on earth in his time 1st Kings 10 23 and 25 tell us that King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in his wealth in fact he had vassal kingdoms around him that were regularly. the kings were bringing regular tribute to him, and part of that tribute was clothing. So you can, you can bet for darn sure that Solomon's closet was full of the most expensive, the most stylish, the most luxurious clothing money could buy, right? And yet, he couldn't hold a candle to the dandelion in your front yard. Any y'all got those? Do you have those in Leavenworth? I got them at Spokane, let me tell you. The flowers don't work hard to make their beauty, do they? They don't. But God dresses them so beautifully that you'll see little toddlers going and pick that dandelion and bring it to mom because they recognize the beauty of this there. Husbands pay enormous enormous amounts of money or boyfriends to bring a dozen flowers for like 34 bucks to their to their, you know, girlfriends or their wives, do they not? What do those flowers look like the next day when they haven't been in water? Right? And then they're so transitory. Their beauty doesn't last very long. Flowers don't work to make their own clothing, but God dresses them so beautiful. And Jesus then uses that as a contrast. Look at verse 30. He said, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which includes those flowers, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Isn't that interesting? I mean, uh, the same flowers that are beautiful this morning, hot desert sun, In the Middle East, they're cooked by the next day. They're dried out. They're wilted. And in Jesus' day, the women would then, who were also responsible for the the baking of bread, cooking in outdoor ovens, they would go gather these dried up plants to start the fire in the ovens. The same flowers that are beautiful in the morning, dead 24 hours later. And they become ash in the oven. And that ash, 24 hours earlier, was blooming with more beauty than Solomon ever could dream of. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus contrasts these flowers that die, highlighting God's extravagant care for them. And He says in verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Cornerstone Church, hear this, will He not much more clothe you? Can I say it this way? Won't He meet your need? Won't He meet your need for a pastor? Oh yeah, He certainly will. He certainly will. By the way, you already have three. That's delightful. You're going to have another. God will meet your need. Won't He much more clothe you? God extravagantly clothes these flowers and yet His care for you is so much more. What will God do? Will He fail to meet your needs? No! He will not fail. That's Jesus' point. God will meet your real needs. So again, Jesus has taught us that anxiety makes us blind. That anxiety cannot help you. But God values you highly and God will meet your needs. And now He's going to teach you one more thing about anxiety. Anxiety is the opposite of faith. Anxiety is the opposite of faith. Look at verse 30 again. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Hear that? O you of little faith, what is he saying? We are prone to doubt God's willingness to meet even our essential needs. We're prone to. And when we don't trust his provision for us and we start anticipating these real or imagined needs not being met, we begin to fret, to worry, and anxiety can overcome us. What's the solution? Faith? Trust? Believing God about what he says he will do for you? We must trust what Jesus says about our Heavenly Father's heart towards us. His attitude towards you. That He values you, Cornerstone, so highly. And that He desires to meet your genuine needs. But knowing it up here is not sufficient. It's not just enough to know these truths. We've got to exchange our restless anxiety for genuine trust that rests in the faithfulness of God. That rests in the faithfulness of God. Anxiety is the opposite of faith. Therefore, faith in God's revealed character is the antidote for anxiety. That's why we listen to sermons that hopefully give you God's Word. That's why we read it on our own. That's why we study it together so we can know His heart, so we can know what He's like, and we can trust Him. So what has Jesus taught us? Anxiety makes you blind. Anxiety cannot help you. Anxiety is the opposite of faith, But He's also taught you that Jesus or God values you highly, that God the Father will meet your needs, and now He's going to teach you that God knows all of your needs. Isn't that comforting to know that the God who promises to meet your needs knows every need you have? He's well aware of everything you all need. Well aware. And He knows precisely when you need it, which we don't usually know. Look at verse 31 again. Therefore, oh, okay. Just like in that first verse, therefore points back to everything he just taught before. So you've got to read it this way. Therefore, because anxiety makes you blind, because it cannot help you, and because undue worry is the opposite of faith, and, and because God truly values your life, and because he's promised to meet your needs, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what should we eat, or what should we drink, or what should we wear, or where's our pastor coming from? I added that last part. But he's talking about genuine needs. Essential needs. Don't let anxious, worrying thoughts overcome your mind and heart. Instead, verse 32, he says, The Gentiles seek after all these things. And he's not using the word Gentile so much as in an ethnic sense, although it means that. It means non Jewish folks. But here, he's using it more to refer to fe- people that are faithless, that don't know God. In other words, unbelievers, they seek after all these things the people that don't have true faith in God he says the Gentiles those who don't know God seek after these things and the word seek is translated from a word that's kind of intensive it doesn't mean just to look for something it means to chase after it to have a a, a motivating strong desire for something that produces an intense internal drive to pursue it the NIV translates it the Gentiles the unbelievers they run after these things and don't you see that in the world What are people doing? They're just running after everything they think can meet their deep needs. And apart from Christ, they're never going to have their deep needs met. Never. So what Jesus is saying is that unbelievers so greatly desire to have their felt needs fulfilled that they're driven to pursue them at all costs. But believers you and i we need not let that same anxiety drive our lives instead we can rest in our father's care for every genuine need we have you can rest in it is a pastor a preaching pastor a genuine need for a church what do you think i bet it is i bet you can rest that god's going to provide what you need either that he's going to raise up one of these other fellows to do it Now I'm meddling. I better stop. Therefore, do not be anxious. Don't be saying, "What, what should we eat? What should we drink? What should we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and, and here it is, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Knows that you need them all. Every genuine need you have, He knows it. I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I don't know the difference between a need and a strong desire. I mean, there's some things about what we're searching for in a church that they're on that borderline for me. I I really want to have my kids next door. That just sounds like heaven to me. You know, all in the same cul-de-sac. Wouldn't that be awesome? Grandkids running about. I, I desire that. Is that a genuine need or not? Unsure. I need God to help sort that out for me. But see, God has no trouble discerning what a genuine need is or not. See, God knows all of our needs. He knows every single one, even the ones that you have no clue about right now. And unlike you and I, He knows the difference between a true need and a strong desire. So when we put all that Jesus has said about God and about anxiety together, we know that anxiety blinds us. It cannot help us. It's the opposite of faith. And God values us highly. He will meet our needs, and He knows every need that He's going to meet, right? We can exchange, then... Our fruitless and frantic anxiety for calm and quiet trust in a faithful father we can exchange our fruitful and frantic anxiety for a calm and quiet trust in our faithful father how by trusting God to meet our needs this doesn't mean that we become inactive sedentary spiritual couch potatoes It doesn't mean that we don't prepare for the future. It doesn't mean that we don't work hard. It doesn't mean that we don't do those things. Instead, our faith in God's Word removes the anxious blinders from our eyes and helps us to understand the fullness of what Christian life is really about. It's not about being anxious about stuff. Instead, we come to understand and be motivated to fulfill the primary priority of the Christian life, And that's why Jesus doesn't merely tell us these truths to believe about anxiety and about the Father. He actually makes some points of application. What are we supposed to do? Look at verse 33. starts with the word but. This is in contrast to how the unbelievers live, pursuing all their needs. But, you believers, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What are all these things? All the needs that God knows that you have. So again, in contrast to a life that's a faithless, unbelieving life that slavishly, slavishly runs after every felt need a sinful heart can cook up, believers are to have one primary priority. They're to seek something first, something above all else. One goal is placed before us for believers. We are to seek personally and corporately as a local church, To seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and while we do that god says he'll meet every need so you have an assignment cornerstone seek the kingdom of god and his righteousness while you don't have a pastor and he'll provide your need for a pastor he will he will this is the very same thing that jesus was teaching them just a few verses earlier in matthew 6 9 and 10. we heard jordan read it when he taught them to pray What did He teach them? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we praying? God in heaven, You are perfectly obeyed. I want that kind of obedience in my life and in the life of my church. That's what we're praying for. That's what it means to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So how do we pursue God's kingship over our lives? How do we honor His reign over us as our Lord? Can I suggest that it starts by uprooting everything that dishonors him in our lives? Uprooting all the weeds of sin in our lives. So here's your application number one. I'll just give you three. We'll look at the gospel and then we'll be done. Application number one is this confess and repent from any known sin. Bible tells us that the guy who says, I have no sin is a liar and the truth isn't in him. We all struggle with sin, do we not? Now, we're no longer under the power of sin because Christ has set us free, but the presence of sin is still an issue, is it not? It is. It is. So confess any known sin. Repent from it. Jim Berg, the fellow that wrote this book, he writes that God has designed the guilt of sin. By the way, that causes an awful lot of anxiety. He's designed the guilt of sin to weigh heavily on our souls, so heavily that we cannot ignore it. Why? That anxiety that that... Unconfessed sin creates, God wants to reestablish relationship with us and and fellowship with us and and that requires that we confess our sins and receive his forgiveness. That's why it's so hard to be a believer in sin. It was a whole lot easier to enjoy sin when I was an unbeliever. I I can't hardly enjoy it now. It's, It's anxiety causing. What is the greatest anxiety in a believer's life? what's the greatest possible anxiety? Be separated from God, who is your life, right? Unconfessed sin separates us from fellowship with God. And because it separates us from our greatest need, fellowship with our Father, it's the greatest source of anxiety we have. So I'd suggest, folks, application number one, confess and repent from any remaining sin. First John 1 John 1.9 promises, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise to every believer. Why is he faithful and just? Because he's already taken care of the payment for sin in Jesus Christ for all who have trusted in him. Application number two, ask God to help you evaluate your thinking and reorder your priorities. Thinking in terms of what you need. I don't know about you all, but I'm having to constantly do this. What is a need? What's a genuine need? And and what is a strong desire that I'm not sure it's a need? Lord, I need your help to know the difference between those two. Often we value things. I need this, Lord. And and we really don't. He knows it. (laughs) So we need God's help to be able to evaluate the things we're calling needs in our lives, the things that we're often stressing about, to sort through it. King David knew this and he, he wanted god to reign in every area of his mind and his heart and his actions and in psalm 139 verses 23 and 24 he prays this search me O god and know my heart try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting i'd suggest pray that prayer pray that prayer we need to be folks whose desires are shaped by God's truth. And frankly, sometimes we need to help to sort out what's real and what's not as far as what I think I really need. And here's application number three. Last one. Trust your needs to God for today as you seek to glorify Him today. See how clever I was? I used the word today twice. Why? Seek to trust your needs to God for today as you seek to glorify him today look at verse 34 Jesus concludes his teaching on how to deal with anxiety and he talks about this very thing look what he says verse 34 therefore don't be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself sufficient for the day is its own trouble therefore there's the third time we've seen this word it's connecting us back to what he just taught us right so Therefore, we've got to remember, okay, anxiety blinds us. It can't help us. It's the opposite of faith. But God values us highly. God will meet our needs. God knows of all of our needs. And because these things are true, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. That's, that's the conclusion. Don't. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Now, that's kind of weird. How does tomorrow be anxious about anything? I mean, tomorrow is a 24-hour period that happens later, right? How does a, a period of time that that will eventually come but isn't here yet worry about anything? What does he mean? What do you mean tomorrow will will worry about itself? And you notice the focus here is this is the third time he said don't be anxious, but the focus here is primarily on the future. The future. Jesus commands us not to worry about the future, but it doesn't mean we don't plan for the future. It doesn't mean your elders don't exercise wisdom in their search for a godly pastor. Of course they do. It doesn't mean that y'all don't diligently pray for that guy. Please do. By the way, thank you for praying for me this morning. I really appreciate that. Be praying for that guy that's coming. Be praying that God forms you into a church that can love and welcome and receive him well and be open to God sharing the word in a new and different way through him. Be praying for these things. We don't, we don't just... We don't just we, our rest in God's provision is, again, it's not an inactive one. It's an active one. But here, Jesus' focus is on how we're to handle things coming in the future, that make us anxious, things that can bind us up and worry, making us myopic again, and blind us to our true purpose. And Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. So what does He mean? Since tomorrow can't really worry about anything. What does He mean? Jesus is connecting this to His previous teaching earlier in the chapter. That's what He's doing. What we just studied. Remember in Matthew 6, 9-13, Jordan read it. Remember one part of the Lord's Prayer. What does it say? Give us this day our daily bread. Hmm. Day, daily, day, day. Hmm. Isn't that, you know, He could have said, give us this week our weekly bread. Or how about, give us this month our monthly bread. Or how about this? January 1 of every year. Lord, give us this year our yearly bread and I'll see you next January. save a whole lot of time, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Sure would. But Jesus taught his disciples to seek God's supply for their needs on a daily basis. Why? Why? Just like the Israelites, you know, 40 years in the wilderness, God's feeding them with manna. They had to go out and get it every day because you couldn't store it up for a day because the next day it it was worthless. Why did God do that? Why did God not just give them a huge supply that they could kind of carry around with them and cover them for you know, a long time? Have you noticed that God usually gives us what we need exactly when we need it, not a moment before, and usually not more than what we need right then? Something about that. See, Jesus is helping us to understand that we need to express our dependence on God for the grace we need today, and we need to express that today. And tomorrow, we need to express it tomorrow. And the next day, we need to express it the next day. We don't store up grace for the future. Instead, we receive it as we ask it for Him daily. God wants us to turn to Him daily. Why? I'll be real practical. Let's imagine God gave me enough grace to last the next six months, and somehow I could store it up in a barn. And every morning, I'd just walk out to that barn. I'd pull out a day's supply of grace, whatever that looks like, carry it around with me, use it up for the day. Pretty soon, the barn's the thing, and it's not the God that filled the barn. Right? You starting to understand? That's why God says we've got to come to Him daily. Our dependence on God for our needs is to be expressed on a daily basis so that we recognize it's coming from Him. When Jesus says don't be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He's also saying this. He's also saying that tomorrow there's gonna be fresh reasons to depend upon God. There's gonna be fresh trouble that comes. Remember Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. That's kind of a general statement. You're gonna have some difficulty. There's gonna be things that come your way that are genuine needs and that threaten to make you anxious, right? And these are new opportunities to either turn to God in faith and trust him, or they're temptations to worry and freak out and become myopic, depending on how we're responding to what God has told us in his word. And notice, Jesus already told us, don't be anxious about what's coming tomorrow. Why? Anxiety blinds us. Anxiety cannot do anything good for you. Anxiety is the opposite of faith. And we don't need to worry about whether our needs will be met or not. Why? Because God values you. God promises to meet your needs as a believer. And God knows all all of them and he knows when they need to be met so question what are you struggling with today I I mean today what's the worry on your mind today after you leave here and you're not not within the sound of my voice and we're done singing these songs that are so delightfully thick what will be the concern that's on your heart what's going to be the struggle that you need to trust God with what are you what what will you ask God Or will you ask God to evaluate your thinking and your priorities about needs today? Will you do that today? Notice I'm using the word today. Jesus used it a lot. Will you seek God's forgiveness for unconfessed sin today? Will you begin to trust God and to seek His kingdom and His righteousness in your life today? If you will, you will have the antidote to anxiety. Because that's what Jesus said would happen. But before I end today, I would remind you that Jesus used a couple of words. He said, your heavenly father, he's talking to believers, and he talked about people who were citizens of a kingdom, because we're praying that God's kingdom that we're part of will come down and be here. This only applies to people who know the Lord, who have been adopted into his family. Let me tell you that folks who have been adopted into the family of God have come to understand what we call the gospel, the good news. And the gospel basically has four parts. The first part is this. You need to know who God is. The Bible tells us that God is the creator and the owner of everything. Genesis 1, 1 says, what? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the one who creates owns. Psalm 24, 1 says, says the earth is the Lord's and all it contains the world and all who dwell therein God owns you he made you the Bible also tells us that God is perfectly holy first John 1 5 says that God is light and in him is no darkness at all and the darkness it's referring to is the darkness of sin see to be holy means to be separated from sin and God is totally separated from sin why because it's opposite of his character by which he has revealed his law. God's moral law shows us what holiness is. The problem is, Jesus told us, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That means to be perfect, we've got to keep God's moral law. And the Bible also tells us that if someone wants to keep God's moral law and yet stumbles in just one point, we become guilty of all of it. Oh my goodness. Now, I've never committed murder, but I've been unjustly angry with someone. And Jesus said, that's the same as breaking the commandment, you shall not murder. I have never broken my marriage vows, but I have lusted after someone improperly. And Jesus said, that's the same as breaking the commandment of adultery. Have you ever coveted somebody's stuff? You see, we've all broken the law. We've all broken God's law. And the Bible tells us that to break one is to break them all. So now that tells us something about humanity. We're all sinners. Every one of us have broken God's law. And I know that because Romans 3, 10 and 23 tells me that none is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us has sinned. You have sinned. I have sinned. Anybody t- saying otherwise is kidding themselves. The Bible tells us also that we must pay the penalty for our sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Wages are what we earn by our law breaking. The wages of sin is death. Uh-oh, we've pro- we got a problem because each one of us is a sinner. And we've all earned death because of our law breaking. What are we going to do? It gets even worse because the Bible tells us that we cannot, by good works, take away our sin problem. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 says it's only by grace through faith are you saved and this is not of works this is not of yourselves so that no man may boast you cannot work your way into a good relationship with God you and I apart from God doing something for us and us receiving what he's doing are under the condemnation of God eternal uh, eternity in hell because of our sin that's what we deserve So what's the answer? Thankfully, God has provided it in sending Jesus. Jesus came to earth as both God and man. Colossians 2.10 says that in Him, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwelled bodily. It also says that Jesus came as a demonstration of God's love for sinners. Romans 5 tells us that God demonstrates His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the Bible says that Jesus paid the price for sin because it says he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him so Jesus has done what can set you free buy you back set you free from the wrath of God and buy you and adopt you into God's family how does it happen how must we respond to this offer well, the Bible tells us we must repent of everything that dishonors God. Isaiah 55, 7 says, Let the wicked turn from his way. In other words, what he does. And let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. So our sin is more than what we do, but it's also what we think. It's our motivations. All those are sinful. And let him return to God and he will have compassion on him and to our Lord, for he will abundantly pardon. See, that's the message all across all the scripture. Turn from your sin, turn in faith to God through Christ, and you can be saved. So you've got to turn from your sin, but also you must confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life. The Bible tells us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which he did, by the way, God raised Christ from the dead, proving that his sacrifice on behalf of sinners was accepted by the Father. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the confession comes out of a genuine belief, you will be saved. So here's my question If up until this point you have not been part of God's family, will you today believe in Christ? Will you turn from your sin? and trust in Christ Jesus alone to save you. Acts chapter 17 tells us that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he's calling all people everywhere to repent. Will you repent today? Let's pray. Lord, how marvelous it is to know of your deep care for your kids I pray for this lovely church, Lord, these folks that know you, that love you, and because they're human beings, they might be anxious about how you're gonna provide for them. Lord, I thank you that they can walk and know, they can live their lives knowing that you will provide for their needs and each of their needs individually as they seek your kingdom, as they seek your righteousness, as they seek to not be consumed by focusing on those needs, but rather trusting you and living lives to glorify you. I pray that they would enjoy the restful activity that that brings into our lives. Lord, and I pray especially for anybody here, may have been in church a long time, but, but they really don't know you. I pray that you would use the gospel that, you, that has just been shared, open their minds to understand it, open their hearts to welcome it, and I pray that they would confess Christ as Lord and Savior and turn from their sins to Christ today. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.